Hi, I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And so today, first two topics are around exactly that. Uh, well, first, starting with the traditional incumbent, Walmart, and then the large tech monopoly, Amazon. Walmart just came out with their second quarter earnings results, uh, and they did very well. They beat on their e-commerce sales, uh, jumped about 97%. And uh, their same store, U- U.S. same store sales, so the, you know, the physical stores, by ni- grew by 9.3% in Q2. This is second quarter 2020. As you know, we've spoken about their investments in e-commerce, their investments in digital grocery, their investments in marketplace, uh, and expanding that third-party supply. And they also talk about Walmart Plus, which we've covered on the show, uh, which is providing free uh, grocery delivery and, uh, and other perks to try to compete against Amazon Prime. Here's a nice little chart. You can see there, uh, there's e-commerce growth. Now, when you compare that to Amazon, it's almost double the growth that Amazon had uh, overall from both their 1P and 3P sales in Q2. Obviously, uh, Amazon has pretty much all digital sales and it's all really e-commerce, whereas Walmart has uh, a much, a relatively much smaller base to grow upon, right? Uh, I think our last estimate, maybe ending 2019, they don't really break this out. It's a decent sized range, but you know, the thought was maybe somewhere around 20 to $40 billion uh, was e-commerce where you know, they were approaching roughly 10% of their overall revenue from e-commerce. They haven't necessarily broken that out for us. You know, the overall, they're doing over $500 billion in total revenue, in total kind of throughput across, uh, you know, globally for for Walmart. But um, yeah, they had a very strong performance. And and I'm curious exactly how they, you know, the same store sales, right? So the digital... And picking up groceries in store, that's still, to me, um, a, a store sale as opposed to an e-commerce sale. It's enabled by e-commerce, but I'm curious exactly how Walmart classifies that in their numbers here. But at a very strong quarter, makes sense. We've seen other strong reports uh, from companies that have invested in e-commerce just in general, not not necessarily even just marketplace, but even companies that have marketplaces and have broader supply and and that more kind of holistic value prop for their customers. We've seen them perform uh, very well, even in industries that you wouldn't expect, like like luxury goods. Right? We saw Farfetch release earnings last week and do very well and have a big beat on uh, on on a marketplace for luxury goods. Right? So not exactly what you would expect. Um, you know, shifting over to Amazon. This is what I thought was interesting from Amazon. So they now break out their 1P versus 3P sales. And so uh, they reported that their first party sales were up 49% versus the marketplace revenue growth. So it's not GMV that's different, but revenue growth for marketplace. So marketplace, you know, the 3P marketplace revenue is taking a cut of the product that's sold. So say 10 to 20% transaction fee that Amazon takes from the seller as well as you know uh, fees around fulfilled by Amazon and that kind of stuff all that gets lumped into marketplace revenue 
And that was up 53% as, a, as compared to 49% for first party sales. Not the exact same comparison, but you can see marketplace really taking off. This was the chart that I thought was really informative. Um, Amazon revenue growth by business segment. You can see here Q1 and then Q2 2020, right? Um, you have, look at this, right? Normally online stores and third-party seller services. So that's uh, online stores is this kind of blue purple line, violet. And third-party seller services is the orange-yellow line. You can see both of them in, in Q1 were right around like 25-30% uh, growth rate, right? Uh, whereas now in Q2, they both jump up to right around this 50% threshold. So that is, uh, you know, in terms of the growth rate, the growth rate is basically um, almost doubling, if actually doubling on both of those metrics. Pretty phenomenal uh, growth rate there. When you just consider, when you just consider how big those business segments are, where 2018 Amazon was doing 270 billion dollars in GMV. I think we said it was around 170, uh, 170 billion dollars from third-party sales from third-party sellers. This was 2018. Um, so you can just kind of see the the scale of those growth rates being able to grow. Um, on such a strong base like that, that's uh, that's pretty phenomenal. So, just a couple, you know, a couple interesting tidbits. We both know we've covered Amazon a bunch, we've covered Walmart a bunch, but again, Walmart uh, outperforming, Walmart showing the power of digital, of digital to enable their stores, and of marketplace to help uh, cement the 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 growth and demand that they have um, in e-commerce. And it's working. And so it's very powerful uh, and, and great thing to see. So the, the last thing, just kind of interesting little tidbit on the, on the note, little meta a marketplace of the marketplace. This site here we found, it's called Seller Space. Basically, you can buy and sell Amazon accounts. Pretty cool. And so you can see, you know, different... Amazon accounts that have been sold. And, you know, if you have status on Amazon and you have a lot of reviews, you can sell your account. These aren't big sales. You know, these are, these are sales, maybe a few thousand dollars just because, you know, your account has a history, has a history of being trusted in reviews on Amazon. You, you can really appreciate the scope and scale of how many third-party sellers Amazon has uh, when there's actually marketplaces cropping up to sell the accounts. Um, not to mention Amazon rolling out a whole lending arm and financing arm to finance their sellers. And, but this is a, a very real and vibrant uh, ecosystem of third-party sellers. It's a very real kind of industry here of sellers that sell through marketplaces and, and Amazon obviously having the strongest hold on that community for the time being. The title of this segment was Amazon's Hockey Stick. And this certainly... Looks like a hockey stick to me. Um, you can see that dang, that that up into the right curve. That's what you want to see. You know that's why you have Amazon. At, I think they just hit an all time high today. Uh, if you can if if you can fathom that. Next topic is Uber. So Uber's had some uh, difficulty. We've covered this California AB five law for a while. Uh, basically, the fight goes on. 
California, New York State, you know, these states are just hemorrhaging money right now with what's going on with COVID and people leaving these cities and just going elsewhere. Uh, so the labor commissioner in California has filed a lawsuit against Uber and Lyft for engaging in systemic wage theft. You fight that, you fight that battle, California. Department of Industrial Relations, you, you really stand for what Uber and Lyft drivers need. You can tell there's a little sarcasm in my tone. We've covered this many times on the show, the idiocy of the California AB5 law. And although that is um, uh, failed legislation and it, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the, the lawmakers in California will never admit to this, but it inappropriately or inadvertently uh, classified people like truck drivers or artists. Uh, well, I guess you're not really performing gigs anymore, but you had artists performing gigs. You had photographers. You had you know all these different uh, types of 1099 workers that theoretically would be classified or should be classified as a W-2 employee as opposed to a 1099 contractor. And so that creates, you know, and, and, and the state of California has done this because they're saying, hey, we're here to protect workers, when in reality, uh, they're there to get more money out of businesses. And, and the reason why that is the case is because the California AB5 law does not solve the two biggest gripes of gig economy workers. Just to recap, first one being pricing. So can the platform arbitrarily just increase their take rate? Uber and Lyft. Can Uber just instead of taking 20%, take now 25 or 30% because it's the holidays? They do this. And, you know, is that fair to the worker? How could you add protections in around that? AB5 law doesn't touch that. The second gripe of, of gig economy workers is the platform has now taken some form of negative action on me, right? Um, a passenger complained. <clears throat> something there's always two sides to every story right how does that producer that driver that producer have a forum have a rebuttal mechanism have an ability to present his or her side of the story if the platform kicks you off or takes a uh, penalizing action against you the producer those are the protections that gig economy producers and workers need does they be five law address that no not at all. But what it certainly does do is help California get more taxes and fees out of businesses. So now you have this as a result. Uber CEO says its service will probably shut down temporarily in California if it's forced to classify drivers as employees. Not surprising. It breaks the whole business model and it's not necessary. And Again, that AB5 law doesn't address the two main issues that workers have. Now, fortunately for Uber, as we've spoken about also on the show, they have that platform conglomerate status. And what we saw in Uber's uh, earnings release is their delivery business is now larger than their ride hailing business. So that diversification, that platform conglomerate status, the ability to cross pollinate these network effects between two different uh, complementary service marketplace businesses, food delivery, and ride sharing, um, we see that benefit the the platform conglomerate as compared to Lyft, 
which until recently, that stock has just about mimicked almost exactly what Uber is doing. And now you're actually starting to see a little bit of a divergence here, finally, now that we see you know, the, the food delivery business, Uber Eats, be so strong and a rise for Uber. Um, very unfortunate, this, this W2-1099 issue. I think, and we've covered it before on the show, that producers do need protections from especially these large tech monopolies. We've covered that at infinitum on the show. But the way California is going about it is wrong and, and not even trying to solve the problems. Um, uh, not surprising. Okay. Next up is the 50 Cent Party. And no, I'm not talking about the rapper. I'm talking about this other kind of 50 Cent. Um, where's my little article on this? Oh, yeah. So the 50 Cent, you know, on the show we've talked about how some of our videos that are, um, you know, critical of the CCP, of how China is um, diluting or polluting the value prop of, of their Chinese tech monopolies, right? Tech monopolies, platform businesses at scale provide so much value for society, consumers and producers alike. Yet when those really large platform monopolies are controlled by totalitarian uh, regimes to help enforce the will and political uh, political aims of that totalitarian government. Now those value prop of of platform business model get diluted and polluted rather quickly. It's quite unfortunate event when we have been critical of the CCP online. We have been uh, essentially flamed or we have our 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 videos have been come under siege from comments by human bots in China Chinese people uh under the uh employ of the CCP to alter the opinion of other people watching those videos and the way they do that is by leaving comments on the video that are critical of the video or attack me or call it fake news or whatever other kind of propaganda. And basically, we didn't know what to call these people. We'd spoken about them on the show and say there's hundreds of thousands of these people that this is a very systemic initiative, a very highly coordinated initiative with had to be hundreds of thousands of people. And then one of our viewers said, oh, well, you got to look up the 50 cent party. And said, well, what's the 50 cent party? Here we go. The 50 cent party is a term for internet commentators, Chinese internet commentators who are hired by authorities of the People's Republic of China in an attempt to manipulate public opinion to the benefit of the Communist Party of China. It was created during the early phases of the internet's rollout to the wider public in China. The name derives from the allegation that commentators are said to be paid uh, 0.5 yuan for every post. Though some speculate they are probably not paid anything for the post, instead being required to do so as a part of their official party duties. There's another word for that when you're forced to do labor and there's no financial remuneration. I'll let you fill in the blanks. They create favorable comments or articles on popular Chinese social media networks that are intended to derail discussions that are unhelpful to the Communist Party and that promote narratives that serve the government's interests. So, so it started. It started. In China, so influencing opinion in China, right? That's where the this fifty cent party started, 
And clearly, you know, as it scaled up, it now expanded to do this both domestic and abroad. Very interesting. Uh, quotes here, a Harvard University paper from 2016. They said here that has resulted in some 488 million posts carried out by fake social media comments. By the way, 50, you know, half of one yuan, there's about six yuan in a dollar. So, you know, it's, it's like uh, seven cents, basically, right? That 450 million social media comments is an annual stat from four years ago in 2016. So when we think about the scale of this and, and the growth of it, I mean, we're talking about probably billions of comments every year and hundreds of thousands of people doing that. This is an impressive feat, okay? This is not easy. This is coordinated. This, they have built technology to be able to do this, right? How do you divvy up work to 100,000 different people? You need processes. You need software. You need to batch these things up. You need to have tech that analyzes and surfaces a feed of posts that could be critical of the CCP, has certain keywords, bam, 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 populates a queue. Then that queue goes to one of, you know, some of these, maybe a manager and the manager allocates it to, to workers or, right? There is a workflow. Even if you had a hundred people, there's a workflow. But to do it at this scale, we're talking billions of posts a year with hundreds of thousands of people. To do it at this scale, this is a systemic thing. This is not accidental. So you really need to appreciate the thought, the coordination, the funding, the resources, the software, the tech. Now, what you also have to ask yourself is then you go back to why TikTok was banned. And, you know, frankly, I don't think the more I've thought about it, I, I think any acquisition of TikTok, what also confuses me about TikTok is, you know, how do you buy TikTok's US operations? And then how do you buy TikTok's India operations? It doesn't make sense to me. What, you know, now, now TikTok is going to sell source code to a US company and a company in India. And then they're both going to now run the app separately and on their own and take it over. And yeah, that's going to go well. There are just so many just technical data hurdles. I, I don't, I frankly just don't think a deal should be done. It just, there's too much execution risk. Or if you do a deal, you've got to hold the majority of the cash um, in escrow or, or against certain deliverables or milestones that, that TikTok needs to be financially bought into achieving, right? Can't just be up. Here's the code. We're done. Here, have fun, right? They, this needs they 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 bite dance TikTok. They need to make a concerted and recurring effort over a long period of time. I'm saying at least a year for any kind of successful acquisition to take place. And I just don't know if they're going to want to do it, right? Or I just don't know. Maybe they're going to want to do it. But what kind of political sentiment is building in China right now where you have the CCP and others saying, well, we don't want, you know, US or India to, to, to you know, they have all these kind of derogatory terms in terms of what we're doing to poor TikTok. There's just so many things that could go wrong. Okay, yeah, the deal is agreed upon. Now we need to do a successful transition and 
could that get torpedoed? It could get torpedoed in a, literally a million different ways. So I just feel like let bygones be got, be bygones, and I don't I don't really see a promising way out of this whole thing. But anyway, I digress. Um, when you think about how uh, Chinese controlled entities have invested into U.S. platforms. You got to ask yourself, hey, what were the terms of, uh, let's say, I think Tencent investing into Reddit? There have been plenty of myriad of stories of the 50 cent party is very strong on Reddit. There's a lot of these kind of these human Chinese bots trying to influence uh, and, and put out propaganda to influence the public opinion about China on Reddit. And you have to ask yourself, oh, well, you know, uh, didn't Tencent put, I, I think, $150 million into Reddit? Yes, they did. And uh, here it is. Reddit gets $150 million investment from Tencent. They valued them at $2.7 billion. This was in February of 2019. You have to ask yourself, okay, did Tencent ask for some better analytics tools or, 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 or better tools to monitor posts on Reddit? Not saying that Reddit would need to take down these posts or do anything to the posts, but just to say, hey, if I've got an army of 100,050 cent uh, you, you know, propaganda artists in China, and I need to give them, I need to give my people a cue of stuff to go and influence, right? I got to keep them busy. So, hey, Reddit, if you could just expose us, you know, a, a greater search functionality that the 50 cent army in China could go use. Oh, that would be, that would be great. Here's $150 million. Now, do I have any proof or is there any information that this is what happened? No. But are these the kinds of questions that we should start asking and start learning about? I think so. Right, because this is the genesis of of what we're talking about is uh, data being fed back into China, into the CCP. Um, there is now a lot of debate about whether or not Trump's executive order, um, you know, would require Apple to ban uh, these, um, you know, WeChat and 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 other kind of Chinese apps, Tencent owned apps from Apple, both in the U.S. and in China, by the way, on iPhones operating in China. So they're looking for more clarification on this. You know, I, I think ultimately what will probably end up happening is anything that, that Apple is doing in China, they will have an exemption, right? Why does, why does Apple need to ban WeChat in China? That doesn't make sense. Uh, but I do think when it comes to activities from U.S. tech companies, that are operating now with a with a Tencent WeChat with a TikTok outside of China. That is where these kinds of provisions uh, will be applicable and 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 will hold their teeth. And as we've talked about before on the show, there's actually plenty of precedent to provide these powers to the office of the president. And I don't think that TikTok is going to be able to successfully challenge uh, the president's authority on this. That is a losing strategy on this right now. So let's talk a little bit more about tech and government, a recurring theme on this show. Uh, and, and, and that is basically, this article sums it up. Whatever happened to digital contact tracing, <laughs> right? 
It is now August, mid-August. I don't have some magical contact tracing app on my phone, right? What, what happened to that, right? We spoke back in April, oh, maybe March, about um, the tech monopolies, Apple and Google uh, putting their own you know, contact tracing initiative together. They were working on this. They were going to roll this out. This was going to help provide that Bluetooth sensor uh, proximity sensor. So now instead of just GPS, which drains your ba- battery and isn't as accurate, but you know, if, if, if our kind of low level Bluetooth sensors come in contact with each other, I think they have, I don't know, a 20 or 30 foot radius on those. That information can be stored and your phone can now start be building a repository of this information, uh, anonymously that, that would be opt-in to users to see if they want to participate in this program. And then if so, if you do get sick, now you can alert the app, hey, I got sick. And everyone that you'd come in contact with within the you know past two weeks would get a notification. Sounds great. Where is that app? Well, a couple things. One, I think Apple and Google, I think they took took the easy way out on this. I would say it's a politically correct path that they took in the sense that there's no app that you get from Apple or Google on your iPhone or on your Android device that says, here is Apple's or Google's contact tracing app. That doesn't exist. Instead, what they did is they built in functionality into the operating system of the the phone and that allows and that creates APIs for other developers, for other app developers to then build functionality for contact tracing. Here's the problem with that. You need a critical mass for this thing to work, right? You, you kind of want a bunch of people using the same thing to share this information with each other, right? Uh, instead, what has happened is it's just been fragmented. It's been completely fragmented and it's like death by a thousand cuts. You have um, government, both at the state and even local kind of municipality level, that are working with different technology, now app providers, app creators to, to launch solutions using contact tracing in that specific geography, like Utah, the state of Utah contracted a firm to make a Utah contact tracing app. Great. What about all the people traveling in and out of Utah that aren't Utah residents, but are in Utah? So what, do you, what now do you do? Okay. Well, that, that doesn't seem to work. And, and, you know, you have startups that are trying to do this, but the startups just don't have the scale to get a bunch of people using the same app. So it's pretty frustrating, right? That that should have been the role of Google and Apple, which was they have the scale. Not only do they have the ability to build the technology solution, all they did is they built the technology solution. And they said, here you go, developers, have fun. And because there's so much just hysteria and and there's all these um, you know civil rights groups around privacy and data and this and that, no one wants to touch it, frankly. No one wants to wade into those waters. The states, three states have opted to use this 
to build some kind of either partner or build some kind of tech contact tracing solution. It's August, might I remind you. Three states. Ridiculous. Um, And instead, the other states are just hiring thousands of people to do it manually. I mean, it's 2020 people. And, And again, you know, I think a lot of this is done under just the umbrella argument that, oh, privacy. When will people wake up and realize that privacy as just a blanket excuse to do nothing is not an appropriate excuse? Case in point, the healthcare industry. That's been the healthcare industry's excuse literally since the healthcare industry, since HIPAA. Since HIPAA came into existence, the whole reason that the healthcare industry can't innovate or can't move fast enough is because of regulation and privacy and HIPAA. And it's and and it is frankly, you know, it's just at a certain point, it 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 stops being the truth, and it just starts being a blanket excuse that you just use to throw up a wall and just claim inaction. Quite unfortunate, we've seen that basically the only answer to the riddle in healthcare was the large tech monopolies to forge full steam ahead in there. We've seen it with Apple. We've seen it with Google. Now we've seen kind of Teladoc make some moves. You have the incumbents that have been resisting change like Epic. And you now see some of the smaller incumbents uh, partner with Apple or Google. And now that they can see that this is an inevitable future that Apple and Google are coming. And I might as well try and partner. But very disappointing to see in healthcare. We're seeing something kind of similar with contact tracing. And you know a lot of these articles uh, about it they just continuously talk about the privacy concerns, right? This is a opt-in service. This isn't something that the government is mandating. You have to go use this app. You have to go share your information with this app. No, no one is saying you have to go do it. But there's a big difference between Apple and Google or a large tech monopoly or Amazon could do it any large tech monopoly with a consumer-facing presence, even Microsoft could do it if they wanted to, to say, hey, we're going to use our scale, our trust with our consumers, with our users to try to get them to opt in. You haven't seen Apple or Google do that. They just build the tech solution and then let someone else figure out the actual distribution of the thing. Not a good way to do it if you're really trying to solve the problem until citizen. Now, Citizen is by no means a tech monopoly, but Citizen is an app that started a few years ago, which would send you alerts. Uh, and it started, I think they have a big following in New York that they have over 2 million users in New York City. I think they have maybe 4 million users total now. And it was all about helping to democratize access to information around crime. So it was uh, user generated, right? I could report a burglary. Um, you know, uh, uh, a robbery, uh, I guess it's the same thing. So uh, an assault, um, you know, a shooting, different kinds of crime. Users can generate it. They can add photos and videos and the like, and then label this information. And then the people that, that follow that area or, you know, live in that, in, in that area will get alerts and notifications about this. So, they launched their solution. It's called um, Safe Trace. 
you're going to enable this functionality. It's using GPS. It's using Bluetooth. It's using cell towers and other kind of triangulation to figure out your location history. It deletes that history after 30 days and then, you know, enables you to, to share this if you do get sick and, and, and then it goes out to other people that have come, you know, in proximity with you. If you decide to disable contact tracing, data will be deleted within 24 hours. All contact tracing data is private, encrypted, and is deleted after 30 days. No one profits from or owns your contact tracing data. You can disable contact tracing at any time. Those are in the app descriptions uh, on the app store. So at least you have you know a company like this that's trying. Everyone wants to beat up on anyone that's taking a stab at this. People were beating up on uh, Citizen for... Uh, you know, they have ulterior motives. Everyone was saying, why would Citizen want to do this? You know, enough is enough. Someone needs to take a stand. I'm glad Citizen seems to have the, you know, the... It seems, Citizen seems to be the biggest app, you know, software company that is genuinely trying to take a stab at a legitimate contact tracing solution that has decent scale. Right? There's other solutions out there that are much smaller. They don't have as big of an install base, right? So much harder for any of those to actually hit any point of critical mass. But Citizen seems like really genuinely the first viable contender to introduce a solution that could hit enough scale and, and genuinely make some sort of impact when it comes to contact tracing. And, you know, even them having... 2 million, uh, you know, over 2 million users in New York City before they, you know, just for their core app, for their core business, for that citizen app that I described, it's a good launching point. Now you think about the country at large, citizens never going to be able to scale across the rest of the country in any kind of accelerated fashion. Maybe they could go after some other cities or some other geographies around New York City, tri-state area. But how do you solve this on a national level? And that really should be the role of our large tech monopolies uh, for a number of reasons that I'm highlighting here. Unfortunately, they aren't stepping up to the plate. Uh, Citizen, for example, has raised $60 million. It's, it's not a small number, but at the same time, it's nowhere where it needs to be if you actually want to have a truly national solution uh, for what we need. That isn't from the government. You know, let me, let me caveat that, right? Uh, I think it's very important for private enterprise to lead the charge on this. Just unfortunately, they're not doing it. So um, very sad to see something that definitely could have been rolled out. Still could, just hasn't yet. But at least I give props to Citizen. And I think if you're in the New York tri-state area, especially, um, you should give serious consideration for, uh, for signing up something like this and understand what they're tracking and how it works before you do it. But uh, I'd highly recommend you at least consider it and, and do some research and look into it. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us, and I'll talk to you later this week.